0: Welcome everyone. Uh, My name is Paolo Drino. I help to coordinate these events here at the Institute and uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speakers. Uh, We have uh, Dr. Adrian Hearn, who is an Australian Research Council Future (coughs) Fellow at the University of Melbourne. He's also the co-chair of the LASA section on Asia and the Americas and he has published a number of uh, books. Uh, including Cuba, Religion, Social Capital, and Development, published in 2008, and more recently, China Engages Latin America, tracing the trajectory in 2011. Now we also have uh, Ariel Armini, uh, who is currently the director of the University of Miami Center for Latin American Studies, although he'll be moving very soon to the University of Pittsburgh, where he is taking up the directorship <coughs> of the University Center for International Studies, and also will be acting as Senior Director for their international programs. Uh, Ariel has uh, been a resident fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, a Fulbright Scholar in China, and has also served as a consultant for the US State Department, Argentina's Foreign Affairs Ministry, and Honduras, National Commission for Human Rights, and he has published extensively on Argentina, but more recently on China's relations with Latin America. So I'll hand it over to you, and uh, great well forward thanks to your talk. Thanks very much, Paolo. We're really delighted
1: to be here again. Uh, you know for me, this is a bit of a homecoming. As Paolo said, I work and live in Australia, but I'm actually from Ealing here in London. So uh, it's uh, you know nice to be back again, and also to compare notes on what I've observed in Australia, in our relations in Australia with China, right? And compare those relations with Latin America and China. And one of the things we've observed in Australia is uh, the growing importance of China uh, for our economy. Right? And as we all know, there's a long story about iron ore. Uh, demand from China resulting from the enormous pace of new buildings going up around China. And then more recently, over the past couple of years, as the pace of Chinese demand for iron ore and copper and metals slows down, we come to the end of this, this slowdown of the mining boom. Instead, we're seeing a pickup of the food boom and the agriculture demand from China. Growing more and more, these are uh, this is a phenomenon that a phenomenon that's equally relevant to Australia and Latin America. And I've spent the last uh, four or five years really trying to look at some of those comparisons and understand what Australia and Latin America can learn from each other. Today, um, I'm going to focus my part of this double presentation on the agriculture story. And uh, it's, uh, it makes sense that Ariel and I are trying to work together on this. Because what we're finding is that as agriculture becomes more important to, uh, to exporters looking to fill the Chinese market, serve the Chinese market, so are perceptions becoming more important. Perceptions of China, perceptions of Chinese investment, especially in something sensitive like land, land ownership land renting. So that's, that's uh, sort of where we're coming at with this. To, to, to begin with some thoughts on the agriculture space and then look at how perceptions are, uh, are influencing the trajectory of this shift, as people say, from the mining boom to the dining boom. Uh, it's a, you know, a little bit easy to say it that way. It's actually not that simple. Of course, the mining boom continues to be very important. But as we think about this process, and we wonder, well, who are the actors? Who are the people that are actually driving this process? And uh, I would argue that it's people like this gentleman here, Uh, him and another 300 million people, who are moving into Chinese cities over the next decade. 300 million people expected to move into Chinese cities off agricultural land or off uh, rural land, further diminishing the number of farmers that China has, uh, and further increasing the size of cities and the kinds of food demand that comes from cities. So this is an unprecedented phenomenon in world history to have so many people moving into cities. And of course, as a result, you do have this enormous demand, as uh, Li Keqiang, China's prime minister, tells us. We have to, this is what he tells his people anyway, we have to rely on domestic consumption, this will require China to import some $10 trillion worth of commodities by 2018. And those commodities consist of metals, minerals, oil, energy, but also increasingly food. And if we think about where are those commodities going to in China, it helps to visualize this think, And think about it in terms of the, the cities that are up and coming in China. This is something that we watch quite closely in Australia. Obviously, our economy is quite dependent on exporting to China, so we try quite hard to understand what's going on in terms of the dynamics of demand and the way that cities are growing so quickly. We know about the stories of places like Shanghai and, and Beijing. Both of those have been the, sources, the main sources of demand for our metals for the past decade. But what we see now is that about 1,000 kilograms per head of steel is being consumed in those places. And if other cities around the world, like London, can tell us anything about demand for iron ore, it's that 1,000 1, kilograms of steel consumption per head has usually been, historically, the saturation It's true of London, it's true of New York, it's true of Paris, and what it suggests is that those big established cities in China won't be underpinning the same kind of demand that they have been uh, until now. What they will be underpinning, though, as more and more people move there, into many of the apartments that have already been built, is a growing demand for food. That doesn't change, that continues to go on, and not only from the big cities, but also the smaller ones smaller second-tier cities like these, Chongqing, Hefei, Anshan, Manshan, Pingdingshan, Shenyang, these six cities that are expected to grow by about 30% in terms of population, just in the next five years. So again, we've got this process of people moving into cities, and as a result, the demand for food growing. These are, the Economist Intelligence Unit calls these, you know, one of these sexy acronyms, Uh, The CHAMPS, C-H-A-M-P-S, those are the ones that are expected to indicate what other Chinese cities will do subsequently as they develop themselves. Um, And as people move into cities, of course, one of the the aspirations that people have is to live middle-class lives and eat middle-class foods. Foods like pork, dairy, fruit, vegetables, wine, fish, Moving away from more basic foods into more value-added foods. Of course, to produce these value-added foods, if you're gonna do it domestically, if you're gonna produce pork on the scale that's required by 300 million in a a middle class, what you have to do is import soybeans. You have to feed those pigs something. They have to eat something, and soy meal is what they need. And this is why China is expected to import 90 million tons per year of soybeans and their derivatives by 2030. And uh, former Premier Wen Jiabao says that by 2017, China aims to import $40 billion of edible oils and seeds. And so this is underpinning not just human consumption, but also animal consumption that then becomes human consumption. Now, we see this in Brazil. Brazil is a, a sort of you know, quintessential case of demand for food from China, and a case of grappling with the, with, with the policy issues and the administration issues that go around Chinese investment in food. This is uh, Sino-Brazilian trade. You can see there the big pickup in bilateral trade was during the GFC. That's when uh, China became Brazil's number one trading partner, this place in the United States. Now, as of last financial year, Bilateral trade is over $80 billion, about $84 billion. Um, and so we've seen a, a skyrocketing of trade, and it's really agriculture that's underpinned dependence. Iron ore, over the last year, dropped off about 15%. Soybeans picked up by about 30%. So we can see the shift taking place. Now, this raises the question of overdependence, right? When you come to rely so much on single... Uh, single exports, monocropping. Right? We've seen this around the world in, in many countries. And so we have to ask the question, do we have a repetition of you know, previous patterns of world history going on here as China demands more and more agricultural products? The risk of overdependence, you could say, goes in both directions. Because Brazil and Argentina respectively provide about 43% and 22% of China's soy imports. The risk is dual, because if you rely on certain providers so, so much, what happens if there's a problem, a disruption in the supply chain? You'd be in trouble. And this is what's been driving, then, Chinese investment decisions. Just this year, China's largest grain trader, Kafka, agreed to pay over a billion dollars for a controlling stake of the Dutch grain trader, Nidera, and one and a half billion 51% 51% of Noble Group. Now, those are companies that already have interests around Latin America, including Argentina, including Brazil. What it enables China to do is import more and more raw soybeans and bypass the big multinationals that are already established, what people call the ABCD, ADM, Bungee, Cargill, uh, Cargill, and, and Louis-Dreyfus. One of the other things it does is it uses an established mechanism that we're accustomed to in global capitalism, going through enterprises that already exist, that have already made themselves legitimate, they're already operating, and this way you don't have the introduction of a new Chinese player, but rather familiar faces and familiar names, even though they may be owned by Kafka. The risk goes the other way, too. As the Inter-American Development Bank says, the looming risk for Latin America is deindustrialization. The IAD says China's objective is not only to expand the national production of soy, but also to promote the creation and concentration of companies that process soy within China. Now this, I'm sure you all know know about the problems of deindustrialization. That can occur when a country relies too much on commodity exports. We see this in Australia as well. And I mean, historically, we've seen it in Great Britain too. You rely on one sector, in this case, commodity exports. This drives up the price of your currency. That makes it very difficult for other players in the economy to sell their produce, such as manufacturers, which means they have to close down. And you become reliant then. On one sector. This is a phenomenon called Dutch disease and this is what the Inter-American Development Bank is signaling that there could be some serious problems about uh, over-dependence on, um, on the agriculture sector in, in uh, Latin America. What, we, what we're talking about then in the case of COFCO is trying to get its hands on more and more raw soybeans right? and we see this in Brazil. Uh, the pink area in the middle there is the Cerrado savanna? There's a moratorium on deforestation in the Amazon, which is to the northwest there. And so what we've seen since 2006 is an intensification of soybean production in that pink Cerrado area there. Uh, Brazil now produces about 88 million tons of soybeans each year. Right? That's the largest in the world. And uh, it does that on about 30 million hectares, and that amount of land has increased by 10% just in the last year, just in one year. So this is, uh, you know, this is, this is a big deal for Brazil. It's, as you can see on the bottom left, on the bottom right there, um, the potential land that Brazil has is enormous, it's the biggest in the world, and uh, at this point there's no sign that uh, the expansion won't continue. But of course this brings some problems, This point again here, the the increase of soybean prices, which doubled in the last two years, has led to this 10% increase in the amount of land. This brings problems. For one thing, what about food crops that were being grown there before? Biodiversity. What about the livelihoods of small farmers that depend on growing those crops? What about the intensive application of agrochemicals and fungicides to control pests and soybean rust and the runoff of those chemicals into local water supply. I mean, it stands to reason that when you have one crop over such an expansive area of land, you need to control for pests, because one pest coming in can decimate an entire harvest. And so this is why chemical dependency um, you know, has become the norm. There are also problems with infrastructure, uh, and uh, we'll come to infrastructure in a second, just to underscore this point here of, of, of potential overdependence, this is what Orlando Ribeiro, the director of agriculture and basic products in Itamarati in Brazil says. He says, the fact that we send 48% of soy to China is complicated because you have a clear dependence on one country. When this country decides it doesn't want to buy any more of your soy, for whatever reason, you have a problem on your hands. Where is this excess of soy going to go? Who is going to consume it? Will we inundate the market? Will the price fall? What can be done? Because this dependency is very, it creates a certain instability. And so one of the ways to get around this, and this is the opportunity that I think Australia has, Latin America has, the world has in dealing with China, is to say, well, there are things actually that China can do for us. This can be a win-win situation. It doesn't have to be uh, you know, a... a, a a scenario of over-dependence. The key to that is to bring in investment, investment in sectors that are gonna bring national benefit. And that's the challenge, that's the real challenge. One of the areas is infrastructure. You can see here uh, Rondonopolis in in Mato Grosso. This is uh, where much of the soy comes from, that goes down to, goes westward to the Pacific coast to China. Look at the infrastructure. I mean, this is how the trucks get out, leading to around 5 of five million tons of soybeans being lost each year. Right. So the infrastructure is a key problem. You can see the lines stretching back. I mean, this is this is incredible. It's incredible. And so, what's needed here is some investment in infrastructure. And it's no coincidence that just a few months ago, Xi Jinping visited Brazil and committed to investing $8.6 billion in infrastructure for Brazil. I think uh, one of the more interesting of these three maps here, these, by the way, waterways, highways, railroads, the faint lines are the, the, uh, the lines, the, uh, the, the passages that already exist. The darker lines are the projected expansion and the new infrastructure channels. I think the interesting one over there on, on your right, uh, railroads, you can see that, uh, that line snaking westward there from central Brazil, that is a, a, a railway that much of that $8.6 billion is expected to go into. The intention is to go across northern Bolivia there, and then down through Peru to the coast to send soybeans out to China. Now okay, so infrastructure is one thing, but does this really constitute national benefit? It might, there are ways that infrastructure can be shared, between different sectors, different industries. You can build up more comprehensive economies by sharing the cost and sharing the use. But this doesn't address the problem of value-added, right? We're still relying on raw soybeans in this case. And so it's important as well to bring investment into sectors or into projects that can add value in the agriculture sector. And here we have the interesting case of Barelas soy-crushing plant, announced in 2011 between uh, the government of Mato Grosso and the Chongqing Grain Corporation. And the point of this was to do precisely that, to bring some national benefit to Brazil with Chinese investment. These were the conditions of the agreement. $2 billion from Chongqing would employ local workers, source soybeans from the immediate region around Barreiras, and reserve a proportion of soy oil and meal for the local market. So this, on the face of it, seems to be the kind of thing that that I think would be a positive step if this kind of investment could come in. And the Chinese government was quite willing to go ahead with this. Seems like it could be a win-win. The problem is that Brazil's, well, there are a few problems. One of them, that uh, the government of Mato Grosso decided to donate quite a large chunk of land as well to go along with this project which was probably a mistake, because as a result of this land, this bequeathing of land, Brazil's landless rural workers movement, the MST, called this a land grab. and This got into the press, became quite uh, catchy in Brazilian public opinion, linked up with the opinions of former finance minister Antonio Delphine Neto, who said the Chinese have bought Africa, and now they're trying to buy Brazil. So you see a kind of public opinion here turning against projects even like this one. This is a real problem, then, because how can an investment go ahead uh, when you have this type of public opinion? Uh, It led as well to, uh, this is uh, the minister's comments, led to the 2010 uh, reintroduction of a land registry system. And what that land registry system enabled was the limiting of the amount of land that any foreign enterprise uh, could could purchase uh, in Brazil, currently set at 5,000 hectares, not to exceed 25% of any property. But the, the way that this all happened was in a very negative um, portrayal of China and Chinese enterprises. And I think that's a shame, because this was a lost opportunity. Uh, the president, Dilma, who just got re-elected today, uh, thought the same. and she. Called this inane or absurd, absurd uh, xenophobia. Right? And she warned that it's that type of language that could scare off further investments from China. And uh, we've seen, by the way, a very similar thing in Australia, in just in the last few months. Right? I mean, some investments okay, are good, and some are bad, but you can't paint them all with the same brush and say that these are all land grabs by China. That's not a, a, a productive. Attitude. I think if there's any lesson from this, and this will sort of end on this point before handing over to Ariel, um, it's that you know the kinds of investments that can be useful for a country like Brazil Chile, or Argentina or Australia are ones that fit into the high end of the food plant chain. So rather than just producing, mass producing soybeans or wheat in the case of Australia. Rather, try to bring investment into, for instance, soybean crush, like that plant, or or food canning, food processing. And in this way, try to place higher value added products into the Chinese market. Now, this is something that there's a a need for at the moment in China. If you follow China news, you know that there have been these scandals lately about food safety in China. There have been a couple of months ago, the latest one, Right, that the, the food processing plant, that services of McDonald's and KFC and some of the other fast food outlets was providing uh, unclean meat to them, you know, unclean chicken going into chicken nuggets and things like this. And you know, having lived myself in China for some time and living with families and you know, asking them about food and their choices of what they buy at the supermarket, what people tell me in Beijing anyway is that they're worried about this, and so what they try to do, if they can afford it, is to buy foreign brands, right? To buy foreign brands, which won't carry this risk of contamination. And we're not just talking about unclean chicken; we're talking about clean and pork. We're talking about heavy metals and mercury and fish. There's a whole range of concerns that people have in China about this. And one way that people try to overcome that concern at the moment anyway, is to buy foreign brands. Now if that's the case, shouldn't Australia, shouldn't Brazil, shouldn't Chile be looking at exporting higher higher value-added products to China in precisely those sectors where the demand is? It would make sense, but unfortunately the attitude, the public perception of China as a risk, as something that China as a phenomenon that isn't Uh, providing real opportunities, but rather providing threats, again, has gotten in the way. And this is where Ariel's uh, work that he's been doing lately helps to take this research a step forwards to look at why people have those kinds of attitudes towards China in Latin America. As Ariel says, perceptions are a key factor in shaping Sino-Latin American relations. Um, I think we've seen it quite clearly In the agriculture space, but of course it goes much more broadly than that into manufacturing products and a whole range of other areas. So I'll stop here and pass on to Ariel uh, to speak a bit more broadly about the issue of perception.
2: and uh, I'm going to get uh, right away into the, the issue of perceptions and the research that I want to share with you, uh, and I'm going to move pretty fast because uh, we want to leave time for, for Q&A. Um, one of the interesting aspects about looking at the issue of perception uh, has to do with the following. Um, you probably know that china has been paying a lot of attention to its public diplomacy uh, 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 deployed in many ways uh, one way that you you probably all know is the, the, the wide network of confucius institutes in, in in the region and in different regions for latin american governments the issue of perception of their own citizens is also important because uh, as uh, adrian mentioned and there are many cases for example linked to mining We have seen in different Latin American countries, reactions, popular protests uh, and unrest because of various Chinese operations. So it matters what people think because this is of course uh, addressing issues of legitimacy, for example, of governments. The other aspect that is important to (coughs) take into account is that as this relationship becomes closer and becomes closer at a very fast pace, it is, just logical to expect that potentially we are going to see disputes and conflicts. So we want to understand what's going on in that sense. So the question that uh, this research uh, addresses is how is the (coughs) debate uh, about the arrival of China conducted in the public sphere in Latin America? And specifically two questions. One question that has to do with the way in which people structure their views towards China And also we want to understand the prevalent narratives that structure these views. So a couple of things that we know, and this is taken from public opinion surveys. uh, We know that when we ask, and this is the the America's Barometer run by Vanderbilt University. uh, When we ask um, people in 26 countries in Latin America, uh, two years ago in 2012, about China's influence and then about China's influence, what they expect in 10 years, what we see and particularly it's interesting in terms of the comparison with the, with the United States is that the gap is shrinking, that people expect that the influence of the United States is going to be reduced and China's influence is going to expand. That's one thing that we know. Another thing, and I'm not going to, to explain the, the graph, but the, the important thing is that largely people... See China's influence as positive. There are lots of variations. There are variations across countries, but as a general picture, that's what what we see. And then this is an analysis that we did with the data. When we try to, and you will see in a second why I'm talking about this, when we try to understand what drives negative perceptions about China, what we find is that. A predictor that it's difficult to find predictors, but a predictor that helps us look at these negative views has to do with the perception of problems that Chinese business face in Latin America, and this range from legal issues to issues that have to do with culture and label. That's, there are many more things that we know, but I wanted to sort of give you this broad idea of the things that we know. The research I'm going to present to you focuses on just one one, um, slice, and we are interested in negative perceptions about China. That is, we want to open the black box of anti-Chinese attitudes. Why are we doing this? Because if you look at that smaller percentage, and it varies, um, but that Core of people who have negative views. It's important because these are the people who may become intense minorities, who may act on their perceptions, and the literature tells us that when people move from critical opinion to bias, we have issues there because people who are biased are less permeable to new information, they tend to process favorable, they tend to to discard favorable information and then to take negative information more at the core of their views. And so when you want to persuade people, when these people lean towards biases, it's more difficult. So we want to see what happens in that sense. Not looking at people who say, ah, oh, you know, China is, is having a positive role, but looking at, those who think that there are problems with China. There is a long history of anti-Chinese attitudes in Latin America. This is, this is just from, from a, a book on, on anti-Chinese attitudes in Mexico, and this has to do with lots of biases in Latin American culture about various uh, ways of Chinese immigration. So there is another side to this. We are going to look at very contemporary views right now. So when we look at perceptions, we can do that in many ways. Of course, that we can look at elite perce- perceptions. So we can look at political elites. That's one way. When we look at the public, we can analyze media discourse. And uh, So you know, this is part of the public sphere. So we can look at the ways in which. Uh, Uh, newspapers and other forms of media create an image about china i have written uh, about that we can use as i show public opinion surveys we can use ethnographies to understand that and we can use social media and so this is what we did in this research we use social media as a tool and we uh, depart from the idea. We, we start with the idea that sorry. We start with the idea that online communities are a rich data source because they provide unrestricted, unrestricted discourse. It's in a spontaneous. It's diverse. They help us pull in contradictory perspectives, and they open a window to narratives uh, that could be interesting. And they can help you in terms of the question that I posed earlier, in terms of understanding uh, how people structure their view. The bottom line to be very straightforward is that uh, we have analyzed uh, uh, the, the various public opinion surveys that we have, and we can say a few things, but there is a limit to what we can say. And when we want to get into this black box of negative attitudes, we hit a door. It's like we can't say any more because the questions go up to a point and uh, you know that running a public opinion service is very expensive. And so the set of questions that we can include in the surveys is always very limited. So the limitations, there are serious limitations in terms of working with social media as, as a data source. We can't generalize results because we are not working with random samples and, and actors are self-selected. Respondents represent specific social sectors. So we are not getting a widespread uh, range of, uh, of, of individuals uh, that are expressing their opinions. And of course, there are questions about the validity of the res- of, of, uh, results because there are many crazy people uh, and unreasonable people writing uh, are participating in, in online communities, and so we need to be very careful with the way that we handle that. It is really interesting that uh, the, in this close encounter between two distant others, most of the time we talk about this side, we talk about trade. So every single conference I go about China and America, we spend all this time talking about, and we see the same curve. That That's something that we don't see that often, that is, when you look, for example, at, at the volume of news, what's clear is that Latin America is becoming part, uh, China is becoming part of the Latin America's imaginary. Now China is in the news. This is, and um, so it's neat to see both together because this is, I argue, the way in which we need to start seeing these kinds of things because it gives us a more complete picture. What is our study? We chose five countries with uh, strong ties to China, Argentina, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, and Peru, and we used users' comments. We drawn users' comments elicited by news, and this is our main unit of analysis. So we collected data from the official Facebook profiles of nine major newspapers in these countries. We we worked with 60 Five news that were common for a year, from August uh, of 2013 to August of 2014, and we came up with many more r- comments. That is a large number of comments. Comments. We clean, clean, clean the data because there is a lot of stuff that is useful, and we ended up with about 1,400 comments. The news uh, have different characteristics. Uh, they they focus on. The news this, There's some news about China and the Chinese, but they focus on different areas of the world. And also we can uh, um, classify the news by the subject that they address, and you will see in a second how we use that. It is interesting uh, the way in which the news uh, are geographically focused, and the reason why I'm talking about this is because at the end you will see that there is something interesting that when people read about China, they also talk about Latin America. And that's an interesting, we can see some interesting stuff. It's uh, something that I can't spend a lot of time, but I just want to show to you is that you have to be very careful methodologically with this and, and we still run into problems. But for example, uh, if you take comments about products, you would see that the comments are much more frequent than the news about products, okay? And, and that's interesting because it's not that you have a lot of news about something and necessarily that drives the number of comments, okay? So, the kind, to give you an idea, very quick idea of the material that we use, this is an article, okay? And uh, I'm sorry, I mean I have this in Spanish and. This is a kind, the kind of comment, so the article, for those of you who don't speak Spanish, it's an article about China's elimination of labor camps and the one side policy, and the comment it's about the fact that, well, this is dangerous, that the Chinese will emigrate, they will expand, and uh, um, the, we, our, our way of life will change. Another article talks about the fact that China decided to give $5 million of aid to countries affected by Ebola, and the comment says, well, you know, let's see if this equipment that they are sending is not going to fail because it's made in China, okay? So it gives you a sense and flavor of the kind of articles that we have. So what are the findings? A first interesting finding is that Chinese products trigger strong negative comments. This is uh, in 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 the group of neg- negative comments, which is what, what we study. This this is very strong. And something that it's interesting is that comments reveal this negative schema that poses a connection between poor poor quality products and China. Okay. So it spills out into other areas, from products to other areas. Uh, 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 what kinds of news, I don't have time to get into these, but what's interesting about these, that is the, relation, the relationship to what um, Adrian was talking about, is that we see two, two news that are really important. One talks about problems of food insecurity in China that generates a very negative uh, a set of comments, and also they talk about Chinese products that are fake that enter the Latin American market. Another very interesting finding is that these negative comments talk about or reveal anxieties and ambiguities towards Chinese development. In what way? The Chinese political regime is something that comes up But what's interesting is that many comments reveal a lack of understanding of of this regime. Uh, We see contradictory trends, and also we see a lot coming up issues that have to do with pollution, pollution both in China and abroad. In terms of the notions of Chinese development that we see in the set of negative comments, we see that people structure their analysis or their view of Chinese development as a dichotomy between capitalism and communist, communism and between liberal and totalitarian. What's very interesting, and I don't have time to enter into this, is that clearly it's people don't have a very clear idea what is political about the Chinese model of development, what is economic, what is capitalist, what is communist, etc. And that that has very interesting implications, particularly when we read public opinion surveys and when we look at some of the questions that are being asked there. And um, uh, well post compare uh, um, uh, these kinds of reactions are generated by comparisons of China with other cases. Then in terms of the international relations, the the field of international relations uh, as as, as a topic in the comments, we see that two elements that generate negative comments are Chinese immigration and the demand for natural uh, resources there is a concern of a chinese domination as an invasion of latin america and this is based on comments about chinese immigration and china's appetite for natural resources which are particularly in certain countries in in the sample very concrete very very concrete things that is people are reacting to these concrete uh, developments There is a very strong rejection of Chinese cultural characteristics. This generates negative comments, it's very strong in the analysis, and they reveal bias. So, if you ask me where do I see bias, where do I find bias, it's here, when it comes to culture. Chinese culture is seen as something separated, and it entails lots of Distortions that have to do with these ideas about lack of hygiene, different food habits, cruelty against animals, etc. That is the general type of uh, uh, conception. And there is lots of racism there. To conclude, another aspect that is very interesting when we look at comments that we cannot find when we use surveys, and, and, and this is interesting in looking at negative comments is that china serves as a mirror to latin america's own reflection so the news on china and the chinese elicit comments on latin america and china i won't be able to to get on on to explain the numbers let me run but let me talk about the relevant issues news on chinese issues generate anxiety about latin america's domestic Development. And about the capacity of governments in Latin America to address the developmental challenge that China poses. And commentators talk about what they perceive as a deficit of state protection. And so it's interesting because China generates these thoughts about how Latin America, particularly Latin American governments and states, are reacting and this is important connected to what i was saying in the in the beginning because it touches on legitimacy issues so instead of focusing on positive attitudes we argue that negative attitudes can help us construct a narrative about china which to start to put it sort of as a summary has to do with this that china uh, china's rise triggers anxiety because of its impact on the environment, outward migration, and demand for natural resources, things that we know, but that we can clearly see with data, and not just with a set of interviews, but with a large set of comments, that the presence of China is processed in concrete terms for the most part. That is, people resort to their daily connection, and a lot of this happens with Chinese products and Chinese business. But beyond business and products, the information that sustains these views towards China tends to be superficial, fragmented, ambiguous. And as I said, there is bias with respect to Chinese culture, which makes people holding this bias less permeable to new information, and the presence of China in the region may have an impact on attitudes towards government performance and state capacity in Latin America, trigger reactions and questions and doubts about Latin America's own developmental path. So thank you very, very much
0: and now we are—we will be very happy to answer questions. Thank you.